Well, it's a joy to be back with you all tonight and to have the opportunity to pick up from where we left off last week. During our previous lesson, we were able to examine the first of two God-ordained roles for spiritual leadership in the local church. For those of you who were here for that lesson, you'll recall that we spent a considerable amount of time analyzing the role of elder. In our efforts to study the role of elder together, we chose to embark upon a four-part approach to better understanding this position of spiritual leadership. In part one of last week's sermon, we focused on the biblical definition of elder. In part two, we reflected on the biblical qualifications for the role of elder. In part three, we surveyed a Southern Baptist perspective on the role of elder. And in part four, we further solidified our understanding on the role of elder by engaging in a time of group discussion. Given our purposes for tonight, I'm not going to be able to get into any more details of the recap from last week's sermon. So if you weren't here for that, or if you're listening to this recording and you weren't able to listen to part one of this mini-series... I just encourage you to go back and listen to part one on the role of elder. You can access that via the sermon audio page in my name. But in any case, having said this by way of very brief introduction, we're going to devote the remainder of our time together tonight to focus on the second of the two God-ordained roles of spiritual leadership in the local church. And that second role of leadership is the role of deacon. The role of deacon, the second of the two God-ordained roles of spiritual leadership in the local church. In keeping with the model that we utilized last week in part one of our uh, study here, we're going to divide tonight's lesson on the role of deacon into four parts, four sections for tonight's study on the role of deacon. Part one of tonight's lesson is going to provide us with a biblical definition of deacon, Part two will provide the biblical qualifications for the role of deacon. Part three is going to provide us with a Southern Baptist perspective on the role of deacon. And part four will conclude our time tonight with um, another group discussion on key insights that we're going to cover over the course of this lesson. So with that outline in mind, again, very closely following the pattern that we established during part one of this series on the spiritual role of elders... Let's now begin our consideration of the role of deacon by exploring the biblical definition. According to scripture, how should we define the role of deacon? Given our usage of Dr. John MacArthur's insights on the role of elder in the previous lesson, I found it equally fitting to defer to his explanation on the role of deacon during our time together tonight. As you'll notice in your handouts, I've included an excerpt from a Grace to You article titled, Answering the Key Questions About Deacons. I want to encourage you to follow along with me from that excerpt as I read from what we find from Dr. John MacArthur in that article, specifically in regard to the role of deacon. This is a direct quote, edited slightly for readability, but faithful to the intended meaning of this quote. MacArthur writes, The New Testament uses three primary words that refer to deacons. Diakonos, which means servant, first primary word. Diakonia, second word, which means service. And diakoneo, which means to serve. In general, these Greek terms refer to any kind of service that supplies the need of another person. 
The words are used at least a hundred times in the New Testament, and they are usually translated with variants of the English words serve or minister. And what kind of service is implied in the use of the Greek word for deacon? Well, MacArthur notes that the original and most limited meaning of the word diakoneo has to do with serving food. We find that in Luke 4.39, Luke 10.40, Luke 17.8, John 2.5, John 2.9, and John 12.2, amongst other places in the New Testament. MacArthur continues, On some occasions, diakoneo, or one of the related words, is used without specifying what kind of service is involved. In a context like that, The meaning of the word is general and could refer to a number of forms of service, such as the case in John 12, 26. Biblically, MacArthur continues, Biblically, the use of the word diakonos is not limited to descriptions of believers, in reference to Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. There, MacArthur notes, the word diakonos, translated minister, is used twice of a policeman or soldier who isn't necessarily a Christian. We find this Greek term also used of the believer's role as a servant, such as in texts like Acts 20, verse 19, Romans 15, 25, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. As such, in the way the words are often used in Acts and the epistles, a believer in any form of ministry could be called the servant or deacon of Christ. All who serve the Lord, MacArthur notes, are deacons or ministers, if not in an official sense, at least in the sense of this general usage of the word. And he cites 1 Corinthians 12, 5, 2 Corinthians 4, 1, 2 Corinthians 9, 1, and Revelation 2, 19 as some sample text to further corroborate that claim. Yet, I'm continuing this definition and clarification from MacArthur on the role of deacon. Yet, he says... The one passage in the New Testament that can definitively be said to refer to the office of deacon is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. How can it be known that the word deacon in 1 Timothy 3 does not refer to servants in a general sense as so many other passages do? It's a fair question, and MacArthur says the answer is contained in verse 8. Notice what he writes. He says, read verse 8. From Paul, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. MacArthur says, an interpretive key to 1 Timothy 3.8 is the word likewise. That word refers back to verse 1 of chapter 3, in which we find the statement, quote, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, MacArthur says that the word likewise in verse 8 indicates that deacons occupy a recognized office in the church just as elders do. So in the church, there is a plurality of godly men, the elders, who oversee the work of those who serve the Lord. And the elders are assisted in their work of spiritual oversight by deacons. And MacArthur concludes with these words, the basic offices of a church do not need to be more sophisticated than that, end quote. Now, how's that for an overview of the biblical definition of deacon? Was that thorough enough for you guys this evening? By show of hands, just as we did last week to get an idea of where we're at as a group, how many of you have ever really done a deep dive into the role of deacon or even just the term deacon in the Bible? 
Well, prior to this lesson, you're not alone if you're not raising your hand. I, myself, though I have heard of uh, deacons, as I mentioned last week, I have heard of elders and I've, I've read about it, you know, in terms of just a broad overview of these roles of spiritual leadership in the church. I've never really done a deep dive like we're going to be doing tonight and like we did last week uh, with elders. So I just want to say that I'm really excited to be able to go into these details and see what the Word of God has to say about this particular role of spiritual leadership. Now, as we consider what we just read together from Dr. MacArthur's insights, his definition on the role of deacon, I I hope that you were able to see something that I've tried really hard to emphasize over the past two years. If you're coming to youth for any period of time, or if you've ever uh, corresponded with me about how to go about interpreting the Bible at any point in the past two years, you'll recall that I have been very, very clear on the principle of the importance of context when interpreting the Word of God. As important as it is to engage in careful study of the words of Scripture, it's even more important to be mindful of the context in which those words are used, whether referring to the immediate context within a particular chapter or particular book of the Bible, or even the way that that word is used throughout the entirety of God's canon, the canon of Scripture. You see, when seeking to make sense of a biblical term, you should always do your best not to interpret that term in a vacuum. You shouldn't try to interpret terms in isolation. You should always do your best to keep in mind how that word fits into the surrounding context, the the immediate context, that is, right? Where does that word fit into the verse within the broader chapter and, of course, within the book in which the verse is found? If the word is used elsewhere by the same author, right, we just, we're looking at the word deacon, so if Paul uses deacon in 1 Timothy and he uses that word elsewhere, we need to go to those contexts as well to see how the word is used. It's the same word. We, we understand it one way in its immediate context. Well, now let's go and see how it's used in other contexts. That might help us better understand the word as well. And then if we could even take a further step back and look at the issue more broadly, it's also wise, if possible, to be able to examine biblical terms in light of the totality of Scripture. How is this term used by authors writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from start to finish in the Word of God? And of course, when you get that broad, that's when it helps to have lexicons and concordances to give you some tools to better make sense of those terms. But in any case, um, having, having said that by way of parenthesis, in light of that hermeneutical principle that I've stressed at various times over the past two years, and having now acknowledged Dr. John MacArthur's commentary on the definition of the term deacon, I want us to take note of at least three observations from this term. Three observations that we can make when considering the term deacon. They should be recorded in your handouts as well, so feel free to follow along. First observation, the word deacon can refer to any act of service rendered by a Christian or a non-Christian. Did you catch that? As we saw from the excerpt we just read together from Dr. MacArthur, there are many times in the New Testament in which the word deacon is referring to an act of service rendered by a Christian, or at times the word deacon used in the New Testament can be referring to an act of service that's being carried out by a non-Christian. In other words, Scripture makes it clear that this term, the term deacon, depending on its context, can either refer to the function of a believer or the function of 
an unbeliever. As we mentioned just moments ago, context is always key for making sense of the biblical words. Second observation that I want us to make after encountering Dr. MacArthur's definition of the term deacon is that this word, the word deacon, this word can refer to any Christian who is engaged in ministries of service. That's a second way in which the word is used in the New Testament. This can be a work of service that a Christian performs inside the church. It can also be a work of service that the Christian performs outside of the church as well. Now, when the word deacon is being used in this particular way in the New Testament, it can be rightly said that all Christians operate as deacons when they faithfully serve God as he's called them to do so. In this sense of the term, all believers are called to be deacons because all believers have been called to be servants of the Most High. When you and I are using our spiritual giftedness to edify others, we are ipso facto carrying out the very function of a deacon, of a servant. That is another way in which the New Testament uses this term. But third observation. The word deacon can refer to the God-ordained role of deacon or the God-ordained office of deacon, which is a designated position of spiritual leadership in the context of the local church. Many of you guys here tonight, probably when you hear the word deacon, that's what comes to mind naturally. It's the role or office of spiritual leadership in the local church, and it's that particular usage of the word deacon that we're going to focus on uh, largely over the rest of tonight's lesson. Now, as noted from Dr. MacArthur's exegesis or his interaction with 1 Timothy 3 in the, in the lengthy quote that we just read together moments ago, the role of deacon exists to assist elders in their spiritual oversight of the local church. Stated another way, deacons are not themselves to lead a local church. God has delegated the primary responsibility of spiritual oversight to those who serve as elders. Therefore, those who serve in the spiritual office or the spiritual leadership role of deacons are to primarily come alongside the elders and to assist them with carrying out any needs that may arise within a congregation. This doesn't mean that deacons are to be regarded as any less spiritually qualified than elders. They're not to be any less honored or respected in local church leadership as elders. This just means, by way of clarification at the outset of this lesson, this just means when considering the function of a deacon that they have a specific calling and a specific purpose in local church leadership, just as elders have a specific calling and purpose in local church leadership. And as we'll note together in just a few moments... Only those whose lifestyle pattern is marked by the biblical qualifications for the role of deacon are eligible for serving in this God-ordained office in the local church. In other words, people don't get to just wake up one day and decide they would like to serve in the role of deacon. People are not to be put into the role of deacon simply because of their wealth, their popularity, or their personal desire just to serve in this God-ordained role. Just as there are biblical qualifications that must be met in order for one to serve in the role of elder, so also are there biblical qualifications that one needs to meet in order to serve in the role of deacon. So in the final analysis, let me just be clear from the outset tonight. There is no room for arbitrariness, partiality, or subjectivity when filling this specific spiritual leadership role in the local church. 
On the contrary, a local church's deacon body should only be filled after an abundance of prayer has transpired, after a season of objective character analysis has occurred, and after godly counsel has been sought after by the elders. This is a very sacred and weighty office of spiritual leadership in the local church, just as elders are. And we talked about that at length during our time together last week. So having encountered the biblical definition of the spiritual office or the leadership role of deacon, may our church, may FBC Edna, be marked by a commitment to ensuring that this framework undergirds how deacons are installed in the years to come. May that be our prayer as a congregation for the leadership of this local church. And that brings us to the second part of tonight's study. Part two of our survey of the biblical qualifications for the role of deacons are just looking at the biblical qualifications for the role of deacons in and of themselves. Part two of the study. What are the biblical qualifications for those serving in the role of deacon? What does the Bible have to say about this Role. In seeking to answer this question, you'll notice that I've provided you with a chart that identifies nine biblical qualifications for serving in the role of spiritual leadership. This chart models much of the same structure that we saw in the chart that I provided you with last week when we considered the spiritual leadership role of elder. This chart that you've received tonight has a column that lists the passage of Scripture that describes the qualifications for serving in the role of deacon. That's on the far left-hand side. Next column, right in the middle, lists explicit qualifications for serving as a deacon as found in the primary text for listing those qualifications, namely 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13. to 13. And in the far right-hand side of that table, you'll notice a column that provides us with an explanation for the qualifications that one must meet as a habitual pattern of life to be eligible for serving in this role of deacon. So when we consider this chart together in just a few moments, it's very important for us to note that each of these biblical qualifications are not arbitrary. They're not subjective. These are to be objective realities discerned by the elders of a local church and affirmed by the members of that congregation. As such, we're obviously not going to have time to go through every um, implicit reference to deacon. As we noted moments ago, there's over a hundred references to this term in the New Testament. Tonight, when we look at the biblical qualifications for being a deacon, being in the spiritual role of deacon, we're going to focus on the key text. This is going to be a, a narrow focus on the, the most important passage for explaining what character qualities, what spiritual qualities need to be modeled in those who would serve as a deacon. Now, one way of uh, clarification, one last comment of clarification before we look at the chart together. You'll notice in the chart, there's no reference to verse 11 of 1 Timothy 3. We're going to read that verse together in just a few moments. Um, I want to clarify why that verse is not explicitly specified in that table. Historically, there have been debates throughout the course of church history as to whether verse 11 in 1 Timothy 3 is referring to the wives of deacons 
or if it's referring to a separate office of women who would serve in the role of deacon, otherwise known as deaconesses. In fact, in your Bible, depending on what kind of Bible you have, there very well may be a footnote marker right next to verse 11, which indicates that the Greek translation into English could either read as deacons' wives or deaconesses. There is a lot of ink that's been spilled as to how this verse should be interpreted. We're not going to have time to get into those weeds tonight, unfortunately, um, in regard to what is narrowly being stated in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 3. But what I can tell you is this, regardless of it was talking about a separate office during the first century for women who would serve as deaconesses, or regardless of if that verse is talking about wives who would serve in, or, or wives who would be married to a man serving in the role of deacon, regardless of where you find yourself landing on that issue, you'll notice that the qualifications found in verse 11 overlap with the qualifications that are found in verses 8 to 13 of 1 Timothy 3. So I figured for the purposes of tonight, trying to be as clear and as focused as we could be during our time together, there was no need to uh, include verse 11 in that table. It would be redundant to do so for the purposes that we're gathering for this evening. So having said all of that, by way of overview, let's now turn to the passage, see what God's word has to say at face value regarding the biblical qualifications for the role of deacon. Can I get a volunteer who would be willing to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13? Michael, you want to take that for us, buddy? Yes, please. Thank you, sir. Whenever you're ready, man, pull that out, read it for us, and then we'll prepare to work through each of the qualifications together. Uh, yeah, read 8 through 13. Yes, sir. Uh, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, li- their wives likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Very good. So now you can say, if anyone ever asks you, have you ever really <coughs> looked at the biblical qualifications for serving in the role of deacon, you can say, absolutely, I've read the passage, and now we're going to look at each of the terms or each of the qualifications that are used for this particular role. So let's look at the chart now, and I think what we'll do is we'll follow the model that we did for our study of elder qualifications, and there are some overlap here in terms of what qualifications must be met for this office in the local church. What we'll do is we'll, so we'll just go in a circle here, and whoever reads, you'll read the far left-hand column, the biblical passage. So the, like I'll go first. I'll read 1 Timothy 3.8. Biblical, uh, uh, biblical qualification is dignified, and then I'm going to read the uh, summary of that qualification. So 1 Timothy 3.8, dignified qualification. He is honorable and dignified. He is diligent to not step on toes or offend anybody 
unnecessarily. Okay, so just like this is, there's direct parallel here for one of the qualifications that we found for elders in our study last week, those who would serve in the role of deacons, they need to be willing to, to be gracious and long-suffering with other people, to, to insofar as it depends upon them, be at peace with other people. This doesn't mean they never step on toes. Notice, does not offend or step on toes unnecessarily. You don't go looking for a fight, but you're also not willing to compromise truth or compromise godliness if there's an overt threat to either godly living or, of course, God-honoring doctrine. So just somebody who is who is who is really overly concerned about just interacting with other people in a way that's gracious and respectful um, and honorable. So, um, Michael, why don't we go to you next and uh, read us that second um, row there in our chart, and then you guys will just follow to Bell and back to me eventually. Not double-tongued. He's not two-faced or insincere with the words that he says to other people. His words can be trusted at face value, and his actions reflect the credibility of the words that he speaks. This is a powerful one right here. That eliminates many, many potential candidates for this spiritual role, for this leadership role in the local church. I mean, just by a show of hands, just think about the people you rub shoulders with on a day-to-day basis. How many times do you run into somebody who you know, yeah, they say one thing, but they do another, right? We all know people like that. Or they always have an angle. They always have an agenda they're trying to push. Somebody who's going to serve in the role of deacon, their word what they say is what you get. You can trust them at their word. They're going to follow through on what they say they're going to do. They're genuine. They're transparent. They don't have some hidden angle or agenda they're trying to sweep in under the rug or through the back door of the relationship, so to speak. This is somebody who is a man of integrity. His words carry weight because he ultimately lives up to what he says. Bell, take the next one, if you will. 1 Timothy 3.8, not addicted to much wine. He exercises self-control and mastery over his appetites. He prizes himself. Uh, he prizes freedom from enslavement uh, to such a degree that he is under no bondage to any foreign substance. Very good. So again, you know, wine—that's the focus here. We talked about this last week. Alcohol is the focus in the text, but really, this can even go broader to any foreign substance. I mean, it can be something like it can be food that you're enslaved to. It can be. Um, like caffeine, it can be marijuana, it can be alcohol, any foreign substance that could possibly cause a man to be enslaved to, addicted to, um, not able to exercise self-control over, that is what this qualification is referring to. It's the ability to maintain self-control over your appetites and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not filled or controlled by some sort of foreign substance. Okay, next one, Alan, please. First Timothy three eight, not greedy for dishonest gain. He puts the kingdom first in all he does. His lifestyle does not reflect a love of luxury. He is a generous giver. He is not anxious about his financial future and his ministry decisions do not revolve around this issue. Amen. So yeah, you know, a deacon doesn't need to be a tight a tightwad or a, a miser or somebody who is who's just really trying to micromanage and be stingy 
with the financial resources of the church or even really for himself. This is somebody who if somebody's in trouble and they have the financial means to help somebody, their natural inclination is to help them. Now, what this isn't saying is that if you're if you're going to be in the role of deacon, you got to be willing to clear out your bank account for somebody. You know, the Bible also says you got to be a wise steward of your finances. You got to be able to provide for your family, um, do those sorts of things that all believers are called to do. But the point of this qualification is they're generous. They they look to bless other people with the financial resources that's been entrusted to them personally, and of course, in terms of the ministry of the church. They want to maximize the finances of the church for intentional discipleship inside the walls of the church and outreach outside the walls of the church. That's what that's what's being emphasized here with this biblical qualification. Karen, you've got the next one, please. First Timothy three nine holds fast to the faith with a clear conscience. He must give a firm grip on the truths of the gospel and the core tenets of the Bible, <clears throat> the biblical orthodoxy. His lifestyle pattern will also demonstrate that he believes these truths from the heart. Amen. So with this, this kind of has a multifaceted um, reality in mind with this biblical qualification. On the one hand, there's the holding fast to the faith. There, there's the ability to, to believe in sound doctrine, to, to promote sound doctrine, to believe sound doctrine, to, to champion sound doctrine. Okay, that's the, that's the holding fast of faith. And then there's the clear conscience side. And this kind of gets into what we studied back in James 2, if you'll recall, that even the demons believe that God is one and yet they shudder. The demons are orthodox theologically, right? Same is true with a lot of men in the church. They know how to say the right things. They know the Christian vocabulary, so to speak, to be able to, to fool people into thinking that they might believe a certain way. But the key here, that little phrase with a clear conscience, it's saying that not only is this somebody who says the right things and identifies with orthodox theology, but their lifestyle manifests the fact that hey, they actually believe this in their heart. This isn't just head knowledge. This isn't just trying to check a box so you can just serve in this particular role. No, you actually believe sound doctrine in your bones and you're shaped and you're molded by it. It's the idea of holding fast the faith with a clear conscience. More, um, Michelle, you're next. I almost called you Morgan. In 1 Timothy 3.10, tested. He must have a proven track, track record of faithful service before being appointed to the office of deacon. Very good. And this kind of gets to the... Um, above reproach idea that we talked about with the um, spiritual qualifications of elders. It's, you know, you have a track record of their life where you can see how they have modeled faithfulness in their lifestyle to the commandments of Scripture. Not saying that anybody's got to be perfect because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But by and large, look at the, the macro picture of their life. There's really no big, grave character issue that is going to cause reproach to be brought upon the local church that they would serve in or the name of Christ. This is somebody whose lifestyle is a proven track record of faithful Christian living. Rebecca, take the next one if you don't mind. First Timothy 3.10 He lives in a way that gives no cause for others to think badly 
of the church or the Christian faith. A man's lifestyle pattern will show evidence that he is walking in obedience to instruction controlled by this in Scripture. Amen. Yeah, a lot of, lot of the same idea there. Uh, somebody who, if you look at their life, they not only talk the talk, they walk the walk. Very simple way of putting that. Blameless and tested, pretty much two sides of the same coin. Brings it back to me now. Um, qualification number eight from 1 Timothy 3 for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 12, husband of one wife. And the summary, if married, the man demonstrates faithfulness to his wife. If unmarried, the man demonstrates sexual purity. So you're, you're a one-man woman. You're, you're either one man, woman in the sense of if you're married, you, you are honoring the covenant of marriage. You're, you're not living a lifestyle of, of adultery. Um, you're not somebody who has any known struggles behind closed doors with, with pornography or anything like that. You're somebody who is intensely devout in your relationship with your spouse. Um, and of course, if you're not married, it's the same principle. You're, you're, you're one man, woman in the sense that you're single. You're not going after a bunch of different women, um, engaging in inappropriate sexual relationships with those women. Again, the pornography thing, you're pure behind closed doors. Um, if, if you're not married, your eyes are fixed on the Lord and his goodness and his purposes. And you're, 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 not, you're not consumed with a lifestyle pattern of lustful behavior outside, um, you know, outside of the covenant of marriage. So um, it's number eight on the list. Michael, you'll take the ninth and the final one in our chart. First Timothy three twelve manages one's own household well. He is the leader of a well ordained household. If he has children, they are submissive, not perfect, but well disciplined, so that they do not plainly and regularly disregard the instructions of their parents. His children revere him. He is, he respects and tenderly loves his wife if married. Amen. So, um, again, another overlap with what we talked about with the um, spiritual or biblical qualifications for the role of elder. Paul makes the argument. He says, if, if one can't manage or oversee their household well, how in the world are they going to be able to manage or oversee the household of faith? So it's the idea that, that th- th- this is a man who has his house in order. He, he, he exhibits a, a, a tender and a gracious shepherding care of his wife. He leads his children by example and points them to Scripture. He disciplines them when necessary out of love for them and ultimately out of a love for the Lord to honor his instruction regarding the discipline of his children. Um, somebody who does not have a reputation or if, if, it's, if it's just seen visibly that their household is in disarray, it may not be time for that man to serve in the role of deacon. So with that being said, um, that gets us through this table. And I I have noted right at the bottom, and for the listener who does not have a physical copy of this table, Benjamin Merkel on Nine Marks, he wrote an article published in 2020, and it's titled, The Biblical Qualifications and Responsibilities of Deacons. He goes into a lot more detail with each of these qualifications. So what we just covered tonight is just a summary of each of the qualifications that are listed 
and 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 for deacons. So if you're curious about wanting to learn more about each of these particular um, qualifications, please feel free to visit Dr. Merkel's article on Nine Marks website. So having said that, that, that brings that section of our lesson to a conclusion regarding the biblical qualifications for the role of deacon. And I, I said this regarding the role of elder. I want to say it again by way of emphasis. There should never be a situation in which a local church allows a man to serve in the role of deacon if he does not first meet these qualifications as a pattern of life. It's not a situation where somebody says, I want to be a deacon, so we'll put him there, and then eventually he'll model these qualifications after he's already in the office. No, it's the church's job under the guidance of the elders to identify men who already meet these qualifications and insofar that they're willing to serve in this particular capacity, you begin the process of putting them in that role in the local church. So there, there's, a, there's a reality, there's a responsibility where members of a church, and specifically at the highest level, the, the elders of the church, they need to be very, very intentional in making sure that the men who serve in this role are already, prior to being installed, they're already walking in faithfulness to these qualifications but there's also another role, um, another responsibility, if you will, that prospective church members need to take as well. If you're a Christian who, who's looking for a church home, let's say you move or you just got saved, and you're trying to find a place where you can go and worship God, with either just by yourself or your family. If you are familiar with the biblical qualifications, both for the role of elder and for the role of deacon, you need to do your due diligence when you are looking at potentially joining a church, you need to make sure that the men who hold these offices, who hold these roles of spiritual leadership, you need to make sure they're modeling lifestyle patterns that are consistent with the instruction contained in Scripture. It is a very, very dangerous situation to be in. If you're willing to join a church that has men either as an elder or as a deacon, who don't model these particular biblical qualifications. So again, if you if you are either if you're listening to this recording and you're in a position of spiritual leadership, particularly an elder, or if you're already a member of a church um, that's looking to install a elder or a deacon, kind of blending both of these lessons, you need to make sure that all parties involved in that decision making process are verifying the objective character of these candidates so that we don't have unqualified men entering into this office if it could have been prevented beforehand. It's a responsibility that both that current spiritual leaders have to ensure and oversee, and lay people have that responsibility as well. So with that in mind, um, just before we get into part three, I just want to extend an appeal, a plea really, to those here tonight and to those who may be listening to the recording. Pray for the deacons of FBC Edna. Pray, if you're a member of FBC Edna right now listening to this message, pray for the deacons on a regular basis, that they would model these qualifications on a consistent basis, and that the congregation would be willing to hold the deacons accountable if they should ever deviate from the biblical qualifications that are laid out for us in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. They begin modeling a lifestyle pattern that is opposed to these 
qualifications. They need to be held accountable with, 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 with graciousness and firmness, that, that mixture of both. They need to be held accountable to modeling these qualifications if they're going to hold to this role. And as, as, as church members, we need to be praying that if any person is ever going to be installed in this role in the future, we need to be praying that God would give us the wisdom to identify the kinds of men that would meet these qualifications so as not to have unqualified people serving in that role. So, that takes us now to part three. In part one, we were able to survey a biblical definition of the role of deacon. In part two, we were able to examine the biblical qualifications of the role of deacon and trust you all have your tables in hand. You can look at that at greater length after our lesson tonight. Takes us to the third part of tonight's lesson. And this part is going to, again, like we did last week with Elder, we're going to consider a Southern Baptist perspective on the role of deacon. We're going to ask the question, and Lord willing, answer the question, how have Southern Baptists thought about deacons in the local church since its inception some eight, uh, some 177 years ago, uh, back in 1845, when the Southern Baptist Convention was founded. We're going to look into that question together this evening. So, how have Southern Baptists thought about deacons over the past 177 years? Well, um, to start, I wanted us to take note of a resource I found very helpful in researching this question over the past week. A scholar, Baptist historian, by the name of Dr. Gregory Wills, who's currently serving at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He wrote a work titled, The Church, Baptists in Their Churches in the 18th and 19th Centuries. And in this work, Dr. Wills notes that Southern Baptists initially regarded deacons in their biblically defined role, just like we discovered with elders during last week's lesson, just as Southern Baptists initially began with a biblical understanding of the nature and function of elders, so also did Southern Baptists begin with a biblical understanding of the nature and function of deacon. They recognized that deacons exist to assist the elders in stewarding the local church leadership responsibilities, and ultimately as a result of that, the, the church was functioning in a capacity that's consistent with what we see modeled in the New Testament. So with that in mind, I want you to listen to how Dr. Wills describes deacons in the Southern Baptist Convention during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Again, we're, we're talking probably the first 80 to 100 years of the Southern Baptist history. Listen to what Wills notes here. And this is a, a quote, again, very lightly edited for readability. It's faithful to the intention of Wills' words. He, he notes this. Southern Baptists believed that deacons were to oversee the temporal affairs of the congregation. They had the responsibility to care for the needs of the pastor, to sustain the poor and destitute members among them, to make preparation for the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to look after the church's meeting house. Wills continues, Some Southern Baptists thought that the gender-segregating social customs of the early church era required the appointment of deaconesses, that is, females who would serve in the role of deacon. There was um, others who argued that those people were um, 
still needed. So some believe that there's no longer a need for deaconesses. Some believe that there is a need for deaconesses. That, that's the first, again, 80 to 100 years of Southern Baptist thought on the subject of deacon. And as we mentioned moments ago in 1 Timothy 3.11, there's a lot of debate on that issue. But nevertheless, you have a clear cut. It's what we've just seen from Wills. You've got a clear cut understanding that deacons had a particular biblically defined role that we were not to deviate from. And as Wills notes, the debate and the discussion about deacons, as we see reflected in this text, would continue at least until the year 1908 when, the, when Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary was founded. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it gives us a concrete date that going right up into the formation of the Baptist Faith and Message 1925 edition, not only did Southern Baptists have a right and biblical understanding of elders, as we talked about last week, but as we've talked about up to this point tonight, they had a biblically valid understanding of the nature and function of deacons. So based on this quote and based on what we've discussed in our previous lesson, the majority of the Southern Baptist Convention was marked by at least two ecclesiological distinctives in the 19th and early 20th century. Remember, ecclesiology just means study of the church or an understanding of the church. But the two distinctives here that marked Southern Baptist ecclesiology from its inception in 1845 till at least the um, 1925 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message were these. First, Southern Baptists were committed to an elder-led, congregational-ruled church government. And second, Southern Baptists were committed to godly deacons assisting the elders with spiritual leadership responsibilities in the local church. So we also noted from last week, though, we know from the annals of history that these convictions were not always adhered to by Southern Baptists. We see the evidence today. A shift took place at some point from what the Bible teaches about these realities of spiritual leadership and from where we find ourselves today. Somewhere along the line, from the early part of the 1900s to now, things changed. When did they change? Well, most Baptist historians will know that they began to shift during the middle of the 20th century. Think 1940 to 1960 range. You start seeing a sizable transition take place in that era. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments at greater detail. This shift, though, this shift caused local churches to shy away from an elder-led, congregationally ruled polity in favor for varieties of what we called last week democratic congregationalism, which is just a fancy way of saying congregationally led and congregationally ruled. I want us to note three Things that began to transpire in Southern Baptist churches when this shift took place. When, when Southern Baptists began to shift from an elder-led, congregational-ruled style of government to ultimately setting the stage for where we find ourselves today in the Southern Baptist world, these three observations can be seen and verified. First observation, some congregations began to no longer perceive pastors as elders, which led to them possessing no more spiritual authority than any member in their local church. We talked about this last week. This observation 
this democratic congregational mindset of church government. This is the current ecclesiological structure that undergirds our church right now at FBC Edna. We've seen several of the problems that arise from this structure over the past two years. We're not going to get into those tonight, into those issues. But my friends, by and large, if you abandon a biblical ecclesiology, problems are going to ensue in your church. We'll talk about that in a few moments as well. Second observation, though, for the time being. What is the second observation that can be seen in regard to the ecclesiological shift that took place in the middle of the 20th century regarding how Southern Baptists viewed church government? Well, second observation is that Southern Baptist churches began to have the deacon boards functioning in a similar capacity to elders. So, observation number one, pastors are no longer regarded as elders, Observation number two, deacons began to function as elders. For example, 1955, a man by the name of Robert Naylor testified to how he had observed this shift occurring in the Southern Baptist Convention firsthand. You say, Dewey, who's Robert Naylor? Well, Robert Naylor would eventually become the president of the, of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and in time would lead that seminary to become the largest seminary in the world for confessional Baptists. So Naylor was kind of a big deal in his day. His opinion is valid. His concern should be heeded as we look back on the history of the shift from a biblical ecclesiology in the SBC to where we find ourselves today. Listen to how Naylor describes what he personally saw unfold throughout the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid-20th and going into the later part of the 20th century. Listen to this excerpt from his work, The Baptist Deacon. How's that for a title? The Baptist Deacon. Naylor is quoted as saying this. There are Southern Baptist churches where deacons have appropriated to themselves authority which is contrary to the New Testament teaching. It may have gone so far that bossism has developed. There is a board complex and a general feeling that deacons are now directors of the church. Nothing could be farther from the Baptist genius or the New Testament plan, end quote. You see, according to Naylor, the testimony of the New Testament and the history of Southern Baptist church polity does not permit deacons to function in an authoritarian leadership structure. Stated differently, deacons are to function as servants of the church, working alongside the board of elders, while likewise residing under their spiritual authority in the local church. This is the God-ordained structure of the church as testified to in the New Testament, and this is the pattern that was seen, observed, and modeled by the Southern Baptist Convention for the majority of their first century of existence. We continue to this day to see many Southern Baptist churches led by deacon board. They, they don't affirm the existence of elders. They're not governed and, and led ultimately by a board of a plurality of elders. Many Southern Baptist churches today, they have a pastor who gets paid to be a pastor and he can be cast to the side as quickly as he got hired. And the deacons call the shots. That's what we find in a lot of Southern Baptist churches today. They are the power people in the church. 
That takes us now to the third observation that I want us to make regarding this ecclesiological shift that took place in the middle of the 20th century. It may, in fact, be the most grievous of each of the observations that we've just made under this third part or this third heading of tonight's lesson. This observation deals with Southern Baptist churches who appoint deacons, but the deacons of these types of churches do not carry out their God-ordained responsibilities as directed in the the Word of God. In such contexts as these, being appointed as a deacon is seen more as a badge of honor and less as a sacred responsibility. It could mean the men who are installed as deacons um, are, are, are installed on the basis of their social status or their wealth or their influence in the community rather than meeting the biblical responsibilities for this role. That could certainly apply to churches that find themselves in this situation. It could also be that deacons in these contexts simply neglect their spiritual leadership responsibilities in the local church. This can be demonstrated in a number of ways practically. could be being demonstrated right now at your church to the listener. What does it look like for deacons to neglect their spiritual leadership responsibilities? Well, it can be demonstrated by irregular church attendance. They're never really found consistently at church or at prayer meeting or at any regularly scheduled gathering. They skip their own deacon meetings just as much as they show up. This could look like irregular service within the church. You know, we talked earlier, the word deacon literally means servant. People who are installed in the role of deacons who fit this category, they're never to be found when service opportunities take place. They're not even living up to the name of the title in which they hold. Or another possible way in which spiritual negligence could be taking place for deacons who find themselves in this situation is that they just they fail to submit to the authority of Scripture on a regular basis. Instead of looking at the Bible and saying, the Word of God says it, that settles it, instead of doing that, they see what it says in the Word of God and say, well, yeah, I see it there, but I'd rather have it my way. Or I know it says that, but I, I, I like this belief instead. It can look any number of ways. Undermining the authority of Scripture, typically, it, it's as simple as, the Bible says X, but I'm going to do or believe Y. It's a refusal to submit one's will and one's mind and one's prerogatives to that of God's Word. Now, I mentioned that this may be the most grievous of the three observations that we've talked about so far tonight. I want to answer the reason or provide the reason why I've made that statement. Why is this particular observation such a grievous or a heinous observation? Well, it not only undermines the function of the deacon office, it it only fails to allow somebody to act like a deacon should act as testified to in Scripture. But this observation, as true as that is, this observation fundamentally It reflects a heart-level issue that permeates many churches today in the Southern Baptist Convention. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal for deacons to just neglect their spiritual responsibilities and not submit to the authority of Scripture? Because it reflects a heart of unbelief, whether it be them being in a season of backsliding as a believer, best-case scenario, or worst-case scenario. It could be indicative of the fact that 
they're not really saved. They're just in a role that they wanted to be in because it's a badge of honor. It's an opportunity to have a little bit of power and respect in the local church. My friends, let me be absolutely clear on this point, and also for the benefit of the listener. If a church has deacons who are perpetually neglecting their God-ordained responsibilities, if, if a church has deacons that are perpetually neglecting local church attendance and local church service, or if they are perpetually neglecting obedience to the commands of Scripture, then, beloved, hear this. Your church who has deacons like that is in grave danger. And I say that with fear and trembling. Such observations as these that reflect a heart-level problem in the deacon body, just as it would be equally applicable to those who would serve as elders, such observations as these reveal that unqualified men are serving in the role of deacon, and if repentance does not eventually occur, such a church with spiritual leadership of this nature, they will reside under God's judgment. They will not have God's favor. If repentance does not eventually occur in churches whose deacon board or by extension whose elder board is not marked by these distinctives, then dysfunction in that church is going to happen. If you don't have biblically qualified leaders on the deacon board or the elder board, your church will have problems. It is a fact. Think of it this way. Would, does God ordinarily bless disobedience to his word? No. So if you willingly reject and dismiss God's word, why on earth would you think God would bless your church or show favor to you? Dr. Waylon L. Payne Jr. echoes these concerns in his doctoral dissertation submitted to Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary in 1996. I found this quote in preparing for this lesson. This is going to be a quote that I come back to probably for the rest of my life. That's how much this quote impacted me, reading it today. Listen to this commentary from Dr. Payne's work. Here's, here's the title of his dissertation. The role of a New Testament deacon, colon, an office to hold or a ministry to perform? Question mark. What about, is that not a great title? Is this just an office for a deacon to hold to, or, or is there ministry to be carried out? I mean, this was a fascinating dissertation. Maybe one day I'll be able to read the whole thing. But I was looking specifically for somebody who, at a, at a very scholarly and well-researched level, was able to take the thesis, if you don't model biblical qualifications to roles of spiritual leadership, then dysfunction is going to happen. I wanted to see somebody who really went into the weeds of research to verify that. We know it's said in the Bible, and if it's said in the Bible, that settles it. But it's always good to see somebody who's really gotten into the weeds of something to provide further substantiation, further corroboration. It's good for us to hear. Listen to what Dr. Payne writes. Again, a lightly edited quote, faithful to the intent of what was said. Here's what Dr. Payne says. According to evidence presented in the previous chapters, in which, and this is in his dissertation, the previous chapters in which we find a historical analysis of the deacon office in the Southern Baptist Convention compared with the instruction contained in Scripture. According to that evidence, he says, there is an apparent lack of biblical principle and practice 
associated with the modern deacon ministry. He's writing this in 1996. Okay, This lack, pain notes, has led to an ironic twisting of roles in the churches, resulting in confusion, hurt feelings, and failing ministries. Such chaos will continue unless definite measures are taken to restore the scriptural foundations. The structure that is needed, delineating both the overseeing function of the pastor-elder and the serving function of the deacon, must be accompanied by stressing a servant-oriented attitude for all spiritual leadership, all church leadership. Jesus recognized authority structures and servanthood. Denying the former, that is, denying authority structures impedes organization, while ignoring the latter, servanthood, breeds a harsh spirit. To have one without the other will result in a dysfunctional church environment. You catch that from Dr. Payne? If you reject authority structures or if you reject an attitude of servant leadership, your church will have dysfunction. And he continues, The remedy for this situation is found in the spiritual nature of the Christian church. Spiritual alignment with Christ is the primary answer to this problem. Such alignment will include accepting the clearly defined roles of church leadership as given by Jesus in his word. To ignore these directives is to ignore Jesus and his answer to organizational problems in the local church. Additionally, the spirit of the church will be healed when its members, in reference to Galatians 5, 16 to 26, its pastor elders, in reference to Acts 4, 8, and its deacons, in reference to Acts 6, verses 3 and 10, and seven fifty five. The spirit of the church will be healed when its members, pastor elders, and deacons renew their personal walk in the spirit. And Dr. Payne concludes with these words. It is only when one is living a repentant, obedient life that he or she can hear the voice of God as contained in Scripture, end quote. Man, what a quote. What insight there. What's he saying? What's the point of this lengthy quote? Well, simply this. Until a church is willing to submit to the authority of Scripture as evidenced by a willingness to apply its instruction to one's life and to repent of areas that are not in keeping with the instruction contained in Scripture, that church will be marred with problems. That's what he's saying. You want problems in your church? Reject a biblical ecclesiology. Do things your own way. Adhere to the wisdom of the world or the popular opinion of the majority. This is a collective endeavor that local churches are called to model, but it certainly begins with the God-ordained spiritual leaders in a congregation. You want to see, in other words, you want to see change take place? You want to see a church become biblical in its ecclesiology? Yeah, the members all have a role to play. Payne notes that. But it starts with the head honchos. It starts with the elders. It starts with the deacons. As goes the leadership of the church, so goes the church. Always the testimony of biblical and church history. So that raises an interesting question. How can a congregation 
get to where it needs to get to? Where, how, how do we solve problems like an unbiblical ecclesiology? A very serious problem, as we've noted time after time after time. Well, Dr. Payne notes, caught it in the quote, he notes that spiritual alignment with Christ is the primary answer to the problem. What does that mean? It means at the heart level. You must be willing to align your will, your desires, and your vision for the local church with that of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true and only head of the church. That's how you solve problems of biblical ecclesiology. You say, I am going to throw every idea, every preference, every opinion that I have that doesn't align with the Word of God, I'm going to throw that completely out the window, and I'm going to lay bare myself with my other leaders in my church and my other members of this church. I'm going to lay bare everything before the Word of God and say, God, you tell me and you tell my church what we must do, and we'll do that. That's how you fix problems. But as I noted earlier, this is a hard issue. This is not just an intellectual problem for most Southern Baptist churches. This is a hard issue. My friends, there's nothing that any person can ever do to change a person's heart or to change the direction of a local church in and of themselves. It's something that only the triune God can accomplish. We're called to simply share the truth of God's Word and love Pray that God will do a work in the hearts of those people who we're praying for and hold one another accountable to consistently model biblical principles in our individual lives and in the context of our local church. We can't change the heart. Only God can do that. Only God can bring a church where it needs to get to, starting with a transformation of the human heart. It's also important to note, very practically and pastorally for you who are here tonight and those who may be listening to this lesson. It's also the biblical responsibility of members to graciously submit to the authority of the spiritual leadership in the church, even in the midst of trying to reason with the leadership and further aligning themselves with the Word of God. Hebrews 13, 17 makes this reality abundantly clear. The writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So very practically and very pastorally, if you're a member of a local church and you are being confronted with issues amongst the spiritual leadership of that local church, then it is your task as a church member to pray for God to change the hearts of the spiritual leadership so that they will be brought into further alignment with the heart of Christ. It's your task, church member. If you run into spiritual leadership problems in your local church, it's your task, it's your biblical responsibility to graciously reason and to appeal to the spiritual leadership to be brought into further conformity with the instruction contained in God's Word. And it is the task of you, church member, to willfully submit to the authority of the spiritual leadership of a congregation, whether it be to the elders or to the deacons. You have a biblical responsibility to submit to their spiritual authority. Now, what happens if you do all of those things and still no change takes place? Then what? Well, my friends, if the spiritual leadership of a local church is not rooted and grounded in Scripture, and you perceive that the spiritual leadership of that church is just unwilling to surrender to the authority of Scripture after being called to do so for an extended period of time, it 
maybe time to prayerfully consider leaving that church. I can't give you an exact timetable as to when the right time is to withdraw your membership from a local church. That's ultimately between you and the Lord. You've got to do what God would have you to do, what you believe after careful prayer, seeking counsel and going to the Word of God. You've got to do what's best for you and your family and uh, what's best for accomplishing the supreme glory of God. But I can tell you this, friend, church member who is in the midst of a church uh, church situation with an unbiblical ecclesiology, if that's you, I can tell you from the Word of God that while you're a member of the local church, You've got to submit to that spiritual leadership authority. And if you can't do that in good conscience, whether it be due to the unrepentant sin of spiritual leadership, perpetual negligence of spiritual leadership responsibilities, or anything of a similar nature, if you can't submit to the spiritual authority of local church leadership, it's time to begin the process of looking for a new church home. Because if you're in a church willingly as a member And for an extended season, you have made appeal after appeal after appeal for the spiritual leadership to make biblical changes to that church. And there's no change. And there's no desire for there to be change. You are fighting an uphill battle that you're just not going to be able to win in your own strength. And if you can't submit, if you can't exist in that church without causing division or controversy, because of your efforts to see biblical change made. It's time to go find a church home that is biblical. And if you need help with doing that, find a trusted and godly mentor or friend who can help you in that process. If any of us, speaking to us here in the room tonight, or those listening to this lesson who may be at FBC Edna right now, If any of us should ever find ourselves in this type of a situation with spiritual leaders that are negligent and unbiblical and unwilling to become biblical, may God give us the grace to honor Him through how we conduct ourselves in such a situation. And if the time should ever come, may God give us the grace and the boldness to leave the church, to know when is the right time to move on. And in light of everything that we've talked about the last two weeks, may the Lord God always keep the biblical qualifications for local church leadership at the forefront of our minds so we can equip others to think biblically about how the local church should function and be governed. And that takes us now to our season of group discussion. You'll find each of tonight's discussion questions contained in your handouts as usual, and I do look forward to hearing your feedback as we work through each of these questions together. This wasn't quite as long as last week's lesson, but uh, still a bit long, and I'm grateful for you um, tracking and, and being engaged with what we've discussed tonight. But let's look at the questions, starting with question one. And Hannah, I know you came in late, so you, this At least this question may be just kind of foreign to you, but in any case, feel free to jump in if you want. How do the various New Testament usages of the term deacon reflect the principle that context is the most important element in understanding the the definition of biblical words? So as we talked about, the term deacon itself, there's three primary Greek words 
that refer to this English term deacon. And the multitude or the, or the um, combination, the combination of those three words are used in one way, shape, or form over a hundred times in the New Testament. We found that one of those words can refer to service that's being rendered by a Christian or non-Christian. We found that one of those terms can specifically be referenced to just an ordinary Christian who serves God, whether inside or outside the church. And we found that the third use of that term specifically refers to the qualifications that we read about in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13 that deal with the office of deacon. So, if I'm looking at my Bible, let's say we all know Greek, okay? Um, Or we can just make it English as well. Um, Let's just say you see the term deacon in your Bible. And you know it can mean any of these three, it can have any of these three meanings. Um, Why is it so important, knowing that, that you allow the context that that word is found in to give you the clarification that you need to accurately understand which of those three meanings that word should be understood as. Anyone want to take a crack at that question? It's just like whenever you see the word all and people say the word all means all and if you don't know what is spoken before and after it then you don't know what the all is talking about. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the deacon. If -hmm. you don't know how it's being used, you can misunderstand what the meaning is. Mm -hmm. Meaning what he's trying to say. Yeah. Or world. You know, how about this? Yeah, world. Uh, Steve Lawson did a study with Ligonier. The Greek word cosmos means world. It's used 10 different times in the New Testament or it's, it's used in 10 different ways in the New Testament, countless number of times. And it's not like deacon where there's three potential words that can be used to maybe give you a little bit more clarity on what's being said. Like, it just is cause, it's cosmos. It, it's world. And if you don't look at the context that that word is found in, just like here, talking about deacons, if you don't look at the surrounding context, you're going to be lost. You're just not going to get the interpretation correct. Um, so, and I say this all the time, guys. I'm, I don't mean to, 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 to rant on biblical word studies. We should all do word studies. We need to study and, and really dive into the depths of the meaning of the words of Scripture. Because those words were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But remember, words are not in a vacuum. You got to look at the context, the surrounding of the words, to understand what the words mean most accurately. Does that make sense? I know I've said that over and over and over again over the past couple of years, but I just want to make sure. As I always say, if you forget everything that I ever taught you guys about the Bible, I hope you remember how to study the Bible because that's what you're going to take with you for the rest of your life. How to study God's Word. Very good. Well, number two, question two. Upon examining the biblical qualifications for serving in the role of deacon, which qualification do you believe would be the hardest to model, and which qualification do you believe would be the easiest to model? We did this last week, speaking of the biblical qualifications for elder, and um, we had a really intriguing discussion, I thought, on that particular question, so I Really would like to hear y'all's thoughts tonight, knowing that there's some overlap between the qualifications for elder and deacon. 
but still giving us the opportunity to discuss this question with fresh eyes. What do you think would be the hardest on this list of nine qualifications? The hardest one. Yep, that's what I put down too. Because you can't, number one, like obviously the qualification talking about how other self-identifying Christians and those who aren't Christians who know you best would perceive you. Like people can hear rumors about you and, and have all kinds of opinions about you. Those aren't the people who Paul is talking about in regarding you as, as dignified. He He's referring to people who know you best, who see your life on a regular basis. Do they see this quality in you? And if we're honest with ourselves, we all fall short of the glory of God. We don't always keep our composure. We don't always act in the way we should act. So it can sometimes be easy to um, get frustrated with somebody and offend them or to, um, if, if they're bugging you, provoke them to a response that, you probably didn't need to provoke them to. Um, we all fall short of this qualification. Probably the hardest one, in my opinion, this is just me speaking, I think this would be the hardest one because we all have a sinful nature. And if you're just having a bad day, you can very easily you know, step on somebody's toes or, 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 or respond in anger or, or, or frustration or, or whatever. So we've all been there. That's what I would say would be the hardest qualification to model. What do y'all think would be the easiest one, though? This should get some responses here. What, if you just look at that list, and girls, I know if you're not a man, you know, husband of one wife, I know your, your wife, you're a woman anyways, so you might say, well, that one's the easiest one because I'm not a man. Well, okay, let's just flip it around and say, yeah, uh, wife of one husband, you know. We can, we, can, we can play that game. So what do y'all think? I put not addicted to much wine because here's my thing. You can you can put guardrails in your life. If you struggle with an addiction or if you're really drawn to alcohol or marijuana or or um, food or whatever, you know, caffeine, whatever it is, like you can very practically put guardrails around you just to eliminate the temptation. You you can do that. I like you can literally just put yourself in a context where you would never be tempted. Now, I'm not saying that you won't give. I'm not saying that you won't give in if you try that. I'm just saying, like practically, I feel like a lot of this other stuff deals a lot with the heart. And although being consumed by a substance is a heart issue, it seems to have more of an external dimension as well than some of the other qualifications. So that's what I put down for easiest. I didn't say that because I like to eat. <laughs> I do too. Y'all seen me eat. Y'all, yeah, Michael, I know you like to eat, man. But I wouldn't say I wouldn't say though that anyone here none of us are just enslaved by our appetite. You know what I mean? Like if somebody weighed like 500 pounds, like I'd say, yeah, dude, you you need to like you're you're killing yourself through how you eat. But um that's not just like an external like that like i i can say that i'm not addicted to wine okay but i'm glad you're underage right um i think like not double-tongued be truthful having integrity like personally 
that's something that I value a lot. My mm. character is something that I value a lot. And so I think that has direct correlation to that. And that really explains having integrity in my opinion. So Amen. I would say that that would be something that would be easier for me. Absolutely. I agree with her. Yeah. You can always, like, that's something very practically, like, when you tell a lie, like, you are you are choosing to lie. Like, you are, that is something you are making the choice to do right then and there, and you had every opportunity to not lie. You chose to lie. You chose to have an angle. You chose to be deceitful or whatever it is. I mean, maybe people just, if they're, if they're, un, if they're unconverted, they're not going to care. But again, if you're a believer and you struggle with this, that that's still a, that's a that's a major issue. It should not be marked. You know, Satan's called it should it should not be marked of the character of believer. Satan's called the father of lies. God has said that he hates lying. He's pure. He's true. Like you are never more unlike God, and you're never more like Satan than when you lie. It's the reality. It's the reality. So tell the truth. Be a person of integrity. Um, any other thoughts or comments on that question? Michael, what do you think? Did, you just, did we steal yours? I, I still think husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Okay, man. You know, you would think you would think that'd be pretty easy, but let me just say this. I don't have any stats, but if you, it just seems if you look at social media or you look at the internet, one of the hardest things for pastors or spiritual leaders to do is be faithful to their spouse. One, I would say the most often disqualifying sin that a person in spiritual leadership will fall into is, is sexual immorality. And that's why it's so important to be guarded against that. It's important. Like if you're, if you're a leader in a local church, you've got to have, like you have people around you who are going to hold you accountable. No private meetings with members of the opposite sex. If you're going to text or call somebody, like you better have somebody in that group chat, or it better be just like a like a very direct, like, hey, like I need I need to get in touch with you quickly, and I just need a response, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, you need to, you need to really try hard to put guardrails around your life, because there's nothing worse. Again, I'll say this again: God is faithful. He, he he is not a covenant breaker. He's a covenant maker and covenant keeper. You're never more unlike God. Than when you commit adultery, it's just the reality. So you got to really guard yourself. Um, we all do. You know, we all need to take heed lest we fall. Right, as the scripture says. But um, especially leaders, that's a common attack that the enemy does: um, sexual immorality. Number three. What is the relationship between dismissing or neglecting the Bible's instruction about deacons and the heart condition of those that do so? We could throw elders in there as well. Tonight the focus was on deacons. But dismissing or neglecting the Bible's instruction about spiritual leadership and the heart condition. What's the connection there? So let's make it easy. Somebody, If somebody sees what the Bible teaches about elders and deacons and they obey it, they apply it, they follow that instruction, what does that say about their heart? Well, it may not say, I mean, anybody can fake it, right? Like, it, it may not say that they're genuinely saved, but there's a, there's a lot greater likelihood that they are in Christ if they're willing to 
do what the Bible says on this issue or any number of issues, right? Like people, non-believers, Mormons, other religions, they're very good at following rules and checking boxes. So we understand, yeah, like it is possible you obey the testimony of Scripture, you check the box, could just be faking it, but it's, it's always promising to see fruit. We can all agree to that, right? Let's flip it the other way, though. Okay? Make it even more easy of a scenario. You see what the Bible says about elders, or deacons, or anything for that matter? Like something, so, I'm not talking about a gray area here. This isn't eschatology. This is black and white. Very simple, straightforward stuff. And you see it in the Bible. You understand it. You interpret it correctly. You say, yep, this is what it says. I see that clearly. It's taught there. I got to do this. And then a lengthy season goes by. Lengthy. Years goes by. What does that say about the state of their heart? I don't think they truly trust the Word of God. Truly, tell you what. I don't think they truly understand. I'll tell you what. It is a, I'm not going to say that that automatically means somebody's unconverted. What I will say, Alan, I think you hit the nail right on the head. That is a scary, scary place to be where you can go years seeing it in Scripture, hearing it taught from Scripture, understanding the meaning of it, and for whatever reason, just not doing it. You know, we've heard it said here. Yeah, we, uh, we, know, we know that the, the Bible teaches about elders, but that's not what we do at this church. We don't do that as Baptists. Number one, it's not accurate to say Baptists don't do that. We've established that um, principle from looking at the history of the Southern Baptist Convention over the last two weeks. But to say, yeah, I see it in the Bible, but we're not going to do it, that's a, that's, that's a scary place to be. Um, that's a true story, by the way. Um, in fact, Mark Dever, uh, I wish I had the title of the article I was reading here last week when I was trying to prepare the message for the lesson on Elder, but he opened up the article. He was telling a story of when he was a young man in pastoral ministry, teaching on biblical ecclesiology, elders, deacons, that sort of thing. And, and, and this, this random church member comes up to him after and says, I know that's in the Bible, but that's just not what we do around here. That, that's the, that's the, the heart, the attitude. Like, again, don't know where she's at with the Lord. That's between her and God. But man, what a scary place to be. I know that's what the Bible says, but that's just not what we do for whatever reason. Um, I do know this. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And his word, it's his word just as much as it is the Father's word, just as much as it is the Holy Spirit's word, the word of God, the scripture, the Trinity's self-revelation and writing. It all matters, guys. We need to, we need to give heed to it. And again, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. If you're at a church that's not elder-led or that has deacons that aren't functioning properly, it's probably going to take a few years to get the change in place. It's going to take education. It's going to take patience. It's going to take prayer. It's going to, be, it's going to take ensuring that you have people that are qualified for these roles and identifying them. That takes years. It shouldn't take decades. It should not take decades. Um, it should take years. It should not take decades. So that's... That's just something to keep in mind. Whether you're at this church or at a different church, wherever that is, um, 
If you're not in church leadership, there's only so much you can do to implement change. But if you look up in five, ten years, and and, and y'all haven't even made an inch of movement towards that end, and I'm not talking about having conversations. I'm talking about like people have actually like put pen to paper and started planning how we're going to do this. Like if that hasn't happened, it may be time to prayerfully consider a new a new place of worship. But again, between you and the Lord, for the listener, trust that you will make wise choices regarding your local church membership. Number four, bring this to a conclusion. Let's land this plane. What lasting lessons will you take away from our study of local church leadership, whether speaking in reference to elders, to deacons, or a combination of the two? What are you going to walk away from these two lessons? We've spent now, by the time we pray and say amen, we're going to spend about an hour and 30, hour and 40 minutes tonight. And we spent close to two hours last week. So think about it, you would have spent about three and a half hours of a pretty, I mean, we, we didn't say everything that could be said, obviously. But we went, we went fairly deep into the subject. We looked at the biblical information. We looked at the history side of how Southern Baptists have thought about the scripture on these subjects. So what are you going to take away from it? What value, what insights are you going to refer back to after these lessons? Personally, like, with the stage um, that I'm in in my life, like, getting really close to being independent and um, most likely moving away and, and finding my own church home, you know, um, I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to learn these things so that I'm not walking into it blindly. Mm-hmm. Like, I know what community should look like in a church, and I know, um, I know what it looks like um, to, to read scripture in, in the right way and that kind of stuff but to to see biblically like what leadership should look like is very important and so like I think I will just continue to carry this with me throughout the next few years as I you know find some somewhere to be Amen. Praise the Lord Mikey what do you think buddy? Amen. Amen, brother. Um, if you couldn't hear that uh, on the recording, um, we, it was stated that this just isn't for an elite group of Christians to strive for. Okay, These are qualities that every believer should try to emulate. Because insofar you emulate these qualities, you're emulating the character of Jesus Christ. Um, and not everybody can serve as an elder... Not everybody will serve as an elder. Not everybody can serve in the office of deacon. Again, we can all function as deacons insofar as we function as servants, right? Um, But chances are very few of us here tonight and listening will ever ever serve as a deacon or as an elder. And, and, And that's fine. Praise God for how he's gifted you and how he's wired you and for the desires and burdens he's placed on your heart for ministry. But you should still try to model these character qualities because these character qualities are going to glorify God in and through your life. And they're going to serve as a powerful testimony to those around you. 
for me personally, as the guy preaching this, again, I've, I've, I've read on elders and deacons. I've never really done this deep of a dive as we've done the last two weeks. Um, it, it really, for me, it reinforces the fact that while it is true that it takes years to make change of, of this type of nature, if you're not an elder-led church, it's going to take a while to get there. But here's the key. If, if, if you're looking for a church, if I'm looking for a church, I want to be at a church where the people who are in leadership want to go there. Because, again, the congregation, they're going to go as far as the spiritual leadership is going to be willing to take them. If it's not a desire and a hunger and a passion that is proactively being um, spearheaded, and propelled by the spiritual leadership that currently exists in that church, it's very likely never going to happen under their leadership. So my takeaway is, when you're looking for a church, number one, first and foremost, find a church that's elder-led, if you can. Find a solid, biblical, elder-led church with deacons that function in a biblical fashion that you can get plugged into and serve in from day one. If you can do that, praise the Lord. If there's none in your area, go to the church that is most biblical and most desiring to get to that place. We live in a day now, guys, unless you're just in some remote corner of our country or in a third world country or somewhere else in the world that doesn't have a whole lot of civilization. We're in a day and age now where good teaching is disseminated far and wide that you're bound to find somewhere that's either already elder-led and, and have biblical deacons functioning how they should, or they're, they're going to be open-minded to it. There's just too much truth out there now. You have podcasts, you have the internet, you have YouTube, you have different apps on your phone where you can get the teaching of men like John MacArthur, Steve Lawson, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, so on and so forth sound Bible teachers who teach these realities from Scripture, you can find a place that either already models these things or is heading that direction, open-minded to heading that direction. So that's what I'm going to take from this study. I want to be a part of a church that wants to get here if they aren't already at this point. And I pray that God will lead you as well to such a church. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. And then we'll draw our lesson to a conclusion. Heavenly Father, over the past two weeks, we've had the privilege of examining your word, seeing what it teaches about local church leadership. And Lord, while we recognize that we've barely scratched the surface of all that could be said on this subject, Lord, we are nevertheless grateful to have taken this time to become more familiar with a biblical ecclesiology. Lord, we desire to to know more about how you have designed and intended the local church to function. And it's in light of that desire, Father, that we are so deeply troubled by the current state of American evangelicalism and the Southern Baptist Convention and even our own local church. We're troubled by the by the unbiblical ecclesiology and practices that are being carried out from the spiritual leadership in those places down. 
And God, we know that there is an abundance of churches in our world that do not function in accordance with how your word defines local church leadership. And God, we know that as a result of this reality that you are not pleased with such congregations. Lord, we we know that you are so gracious and so kind to, to save in light of theological error, you're so gracious and so kind to work in churches that have ecclesiological errors. God, you are so kind and gracious to do those things. But Father, we also recognize that we are called to be faithful to pursuing greater measures of purity of doctrine and purity of worship in our local church setting. We are called to allow the authority of Scripture to govern and shape every aspect of our lives and ministry in the local church. And Father, it's our prayer that we would see that accomplished in our current context at FBC Edna and in whatever churches that you may lead us to in the future at the appointed time, if that is something you do in the future and moving us out of FBC Edna, Father, we ask that we would be part of a local church that functions as your word calls it to. God, we thank you for this time we've had together tonight. We thank you for the privilege it is to sing to you, to pray to you, to sit under the teaching of your word and to fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. May we never neglect these blessed spiritual privileges. May we pursue them with every fiber of our being as we have opportunity to do so in this life. We commit the rest of this night to you We pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.